Fabulous and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, United use words like fabulous and you know, super every sentence they spit out. You know? Yeah. Well, I really like these scumbags. You don't. Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name is Jason Barnard. That was Dexy's Midnight Runners, and this is what she's like because I've got the wonderful Helen O'Hara actually with me here in the Strange Brew Podcast studio. Huge welcome, Helen. Hello, Jason. Thanks for inviting me. And I was just really, really pleasantly surprised how fantastic your new memoir is, what she's like. It's such a vivid encapsulation of your life and I think one of the themes that, that runs through it is the power of music and how it complements all our lives. Is, is that something that you, you feel as well? I do now. I didn't didn't realise it so much when I started writing the book or even until I finished it. And actually people pointed out how much music, how predominant music was throughout the book. And then when I made my playlist... I think there were 209 songs or something wow. mentioned. <laughs> so I realise now how, how important music has been in my life, or more, more, you know, more than ever. You said that it was a conversation with your mum that sparked off the idea to, to capture your life. Yes, that's right. My mum suggested that I I write a book one day, you know, and um, about my life. And at the time, I I think I was embarrassed, really, about about the idea that I should write a book about myself. And when I thought about it a bit more, you know, after a year or so, I thought, actually, I think she's got a point. I think it would be good to to look back and make sense of my life as well, because it had been pretty chaotic, I think, in, in terms of particularly in the early Dex's years where we were so busy and I never fully processed it, I think. And then you're always on to the next thing, aren't you? You're yeah. always... Whatever it is in life, you know, through different aspects of music that I was um, exploring and then with my family and then I became busy with with my children and doing other things. So when she said, you know, you've actually had a very interesting life and this is when I'd started playing music again after having given up for 20 odd years, um, that's when I thought it'd be good for me to do it for myself, (laughs) you know, if, if nobody else, you know what I mean, so... It's been really great to do it. And also, I think, you know, it made me realise what a good life I've had. So I'm really, you know, really appreciate my mum, you know, suggesting it. Many musicians in bands, it's usually guitar at home, 
type thing, and then they go into bands with a violin. I assume it was lessons as a child, and then building from there. Yeah, it was sort of quite a traditional classical upbringing, but running alongside that, I was listening to a lot of or being exposed to a lot of pop music that my um, elder brother in particular was playing. He was buying the Beatles records, the Stones records, the Pretty Things, the Kinks, very much the chant music particularly. Um, and also we had the telly on watching, you know, um, Ready, Steady, Go, Top of the Pops, that sort of thing. So I had this parallel music world running and gradually the pop world was overtaking the classical world. Although, you know, I was sort of, because the violin isn't a traditional band instrument, I was preparing myself to go into the classical world. But once I was in my teens, I was then beginning to think, well, how, how could that, how could this work? I never thought about learning to play the guitar or, or well, say the electric guitar or, you know, the drums or something to get myself into a band. That actually didn't occur to me because I think the violin was very much my instrument. So that when I saw this advert for all instruments required or, you know, for an audition for, for a band, that's when I thought, right, that's my opportunity now to <laughs> make or break. Pre-Dexies, really interesting recollection of the bands that you featured in. I think there was one which was a post-Groundhogs band. That was the first band that I'd auditioned for with a um, guy called Ken Bostelnik, who had been the Groundhogs drummer. And he'd formed this instrumental band, progressive rock band, who'd actually... You know, a few weeks before I joined them, um, they supported Can at the Rainbow. You know, so um, you know because of his connections and that that sort of thing. So a few of them had left, hence advertising for new new band members. And it was a very interesting band, and it was certainly where you know I I learned the beginnings of of how to be in a band. And you know, I didn't know what a riff was in that that sort of thing. And he he was he was very patient with me and um, a viola player who I was at. Um, a sixth form college with and she was yeah viola player and we we kind of worked as a a team to, you know as a string section but we also played individual lines it was quite an interesting sound actually and he had um he didn't have a, he didn't want a bass guitarist for some reason i don't know <laughs> it's quite unusual um and the guitarist sometimes played the hofner bass right. as a but more as a lead instrument but never as a as a real bass um there was a keyboard player as one who was very good who had, had a mini moog, you know, just come out and it was whatever works, you know, <laughs> a bit of flute. And it was, it was, yeah, really interesting. We did a lot, you know, quite a few gigs and things played in, um, you know, Milky Way, Milk, Milk Bag in, in uh, Holland and um, Paradiso and places. And it was a good, it was a good training, but then it wasn't really progressing, put it that way. And, and he had this um, big PA, which we then started to hire out a lot and, that tended to take over to get money in, and I just realised we weren't. It was what really wasn't going anywhere. So then I, I left that group, and then I joined another group. Which interestingly, some of the group who'd previously been, been in his band had joined, so they'd kind of defected to this other group, which was a soul group. Right. Um, I joined that group as a pianist um, because they didn't want a violinist, and I thought, well, it's better to be in a band than not be in a band. And and that was the group I really learnt my trade with. I think what it was like to gig night after night and rehearse day in, day out and see how songs were put together. And we also were Al Matthews' backing band for a while, which was, again, another another level up touring with somebody who's got the top top 20 single. But again, you know, like a, a lot of these things, you know, we, we didn't get a, a record contract. 
And I think it could just come to the point where we, we couldn't go any further. You know, we knew that and I knew that. And when one, when one of the guys said, well, I'm going to go to college, I could just see it all folding. So I left and then there were no, no other bands to join in Bristol, basically. <laughs> so um, my sister suggested, how about going to music college? And I thought that was a, a really positive thing to do. Some, I, I knew that I needed to improve as a violinist as well. That thing of realizing you're frustra- you know, you're getting frustrated with you can't play things that you can hear. How do I do it? And also, it meant leaving Brist- Bristol, which appealed. It's a fresh start. And yeah, I went to Birmingham Conservatoire for four years. Was it very early eighties by then? I went. I went in 1978. Right. In the autumn of 1978, on a three-year course, and then in my last year, I was offered a postgraduate year, which I was very pleased to be offered because I, I suddenly realised I was I'd run out of time, and um, it gave me another year to think about what work to get, which again would have been I was looking at joining an orchestra, and so I started to do orchestral auditions because that's what you did if you wanted to play. I didn't want to teach. I tried that, and um, well, I never really want. I, I knew I never wanted to do that anyway, but. You know, I'd, I'd worked out, I, I really didn't want to do it when I'd been offered some work. And also realised how specialist it is, having experienced some not great teachers and some excellent teachers and that responsibility, but also just not my thing. You know, I wanted to play, create. And that, of course, in my fourth year is where I met up with um, Kevin Al Archer from the Blue Ox Babes and played with his band on some demos, which he then played to Kevin Rowland, <laughs> who then um, asked me to play on some of his demos for Dexys. Some of that Blue Ox Babes material was quite influential for Kevin in relation to starting to reorientate the sound of Dexys. Uh, well, Kevin, Kevin Rowland had been using strings anyway. Right. He'd been experimenting with been but more so with cello, viola, violin, I think not in the way that Kevin Archer was using it. And I think, yeah, Kevin Archer's way of using me was influential because even though I was the only fiddle player, I was double-tracking a lot a lot of the lines, which is what, you know, the Elmwood Express were, were a three-piece violin group playing the same lines. So, it's, you know, similar thing, really. And the way Kevin Archer was using the strings was... Natural to my, my my style was fairly robust anyway, um, so it fitted his his band naturally, but quite rhythmic. And also, Kevin Rollo could see that I could improvise. I think when he when he heard Kevin Archer's demos. So yeah, and also there was one song which, which Kevin Rollo acknowledges now, um, which has uh, as an influence for Kevin Aldean, which had a speed up section, and um, he does acknowledge that that influenced Kevin Aldean. So. It's all good now, but I think at the time it was, you know. It was the yeah. Celtic Soul Brothers. That that was the first track that you played it's on. Is that Dexys, right? yeah. But actually, with um, a cello and a viola player, so it wasn't like you hear now. But that was the point. I think that there was still experimentation going on then, and Kevin wasn't. I could see when he was hearing us record that. He wasn't happy with it, you know. I, I knew that it wasn't how we were playing. I could see, I could see somebody who was questioning what they were hearing as, as just a puzzle sort of thing. So um, after that, I was asked to come along to Diamond Sound, which was Dexy's rehearsal room by myself, where Kevin experimented more with just with me. But but then he said, "I'd like to hear more violins. Can you find another one? Actually, can you find two other?" 
fiddle players. And that's where I found Steve and Roger from, you know, the college. And as soon as Kevin heard us three playing in unison, it, instantly he said, yeah, that's... Well, actually, he didn't say yes. He just... That was it. I could see that he... It, what he was hearing was working, because um, I could just tell by, you know, the vibe and everything. So, and that's how it, that's how it started, really. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Celtic Soul Brothers and the Strong Devoted. <laughs> Parking back to his roots, the Irish sound, and that ultimately led to the change of surnames to something more Irish. Yeah, although I didn't realise that at the time, um, right. I didn't. I didn't know Kevin was Irish. Um, I didn't think what we were playing was particularly Irish sounding. I wasn't that familiar with Irish music, but it it didn't seem particularly Celtic to me because he was asking us to play more like the Brass anyway and right. to imitate their style. But of course. 
It was, you know, in hindsight now I can see that it was. And of course, when I played the opening line for um, Eileen, um, Oh, believe me, for those endearing and charms, that's obviously an Irish, Irish I know I got that. And then he gave us the name Emerald Express, you know, and then our surnames. But it, it was, I thought of it more as theatre, really, and um, just mixing up styles, you know, because it seemed a real mix, Dexy sound to me, and I, I wasn't following a lot of pop music at the time. Funny, actually. But, you know, from my past, where I had followed a lot of pop music, I could see that he was incorporating lots of different styles and textures and, and things. So, but yeah, he was he was um, looking at that Celtic influence. So at the time, you weren't necessarily clear whether you were in the, the band. There wasn't really much money involved. It wasn't like you went into a huge chart act and then you were, you were clear about where things were going. I wasn't clear at all where things were going. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I was, so I was, you know, very, very busy at college. I was in my final year. I was leading the symphony orchestra. I was leading the chamber orchestra. I was in lots of quartets. And we also had professional engagements as, as classical musicians as well. I was part of a quartet where we used to be playing rotary clubs and get paid and, you know, all these. So it was incredibly busy there. I'd met up with, first with the Blokes Babes, now with, you know, sort of defected to Dex's being more and more drawn into the pop world, which I had sort of resist, was try, had tried to resist a bit because I felt I should go down the classical path, but my heart was telling me other, otherwise. Getting more and more drawn into to playing Dexes, there was no money, but I didn't think about money. I'd never thought about money being in a band. I'd never had any, never made any money from, from being in a band before anyway. I'd never had any money apart from, you know, paper rounds and things. So I was on a student grant. So that, but I knew that Dexys had had some success, but I I never thought of it in terms of money or anything like that. What I knew was I'd met a fantastic band. I mean, that was the thing, is that when you were in the presence of great musicians in whatever genre, it's so inspiring. And, and you know, it really was the moment I walked into Dexys um, rehearsal room that I knew I was, and particularly with Kevin, I knew I was in amongst special people and the, the songs were incredible. And But I, did, I never really thought what's going to happen next week. I really only thought day to day, yeah. possibly because my life was very busy. But that was just how I led my life anyway. I didn't have any long-term plans or anything. And the two, classical and pop world, just coexisted very nicely <laughs> right until the end of my um, my degree, which was in July, early August, by which point I had recorded to IA and the Celtic Soul Brothers had been released but hadn't done very well. I'd done one gig, the Radio One show. And it was really at the end of my degree where I, you know, had been offered this job with the Symphony Orchestra, which I'd accepted and sent the contract back. But was thinking, hang on a minute, <laughs> actually I'd much rather be in Texas, but nobody had offered me a job. There wasn't any money. There was this dilemma obviously of, you know, reality is got to live somehow but right at the end of my my degree really almost like the day after the graduation and we were doing the tv and, and dex's manager said basically offered me the job with some money not very much but it was enough to to live on and i was living on a student grant so as long as it, it matched that you know it was fine and so i then contacted the orchestra and <laughs> Oops, you know. <laughs> Excuse me, but I want to protect. No, I, I didn't tell them what I was doing, but I, yeah, broke off the contract. That, that was fine. I didn't know any more about it. And um, joined Dex's. 
but you know we we still we were at the right at the tail end of the chart so there was no there was no guarantee at all but that's just how I've always lived my life I've just gone with my instinct and I'm like you know you've still got your talent haven't you you still mm. if if things hadn't worked out I knew I could still play even I had to go and busk or you know you just get your classical chops back again and go for the in, yeah. go for the interviews and the auditions again or you teach or you know you find a way but I just thought well then this is this is just what I want to do these, these are the guys I want to be with you know so and of course it did work out Come on, Arlene, leaped up the charts in a, a number of stages, and that must have been quite a, a game changer when when you you know you get into the, the the top of the charts, and there is a shift from being in a group which is at the lower end of the charts and, and live work, and then being on top of the pops, and you've got the sort of me- media going around as well. Yes, and I think having played in the groups in Bristol that really helped, even though we hadn't you know had any success, obviously like you know I was experiencing then. I understood that world, you know, even if it was not top of the pops world, but I, I understood it. I always focused on the music. So it was never about the media thing. And it, it always seemed a bit sort of like, almost like watching somebody else, actually, a lot of doing smash hits interviews. And yeah. but even being on top of the pops, it was almost like looking down on, on, on another person doing it all in some ways. And life goes by very quickly when you're when you suddenly get that success and everybody wants you and and particularly back then in the eighties early eighties where unlike now where we can do things by zoom and interviews you can stay in one place you had to physically go to every radio station every TV studio and etc cetera, etc cetera, and and you're just whizzed around you know right next 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 <laughs> um and you become sort of not on autopilot, but but you um, um, your life is life is going by very very fast. So you haven't really got a lot of time to think. Oh, you know, this is, this is well, I mean, you do think this is great, but you know, you're you're caught up. You're working all the time in a very busy, slightly unreal world.
I said, come on, Eileen. Well, you know how I'm feeling. I'm telling you, I'll pledge. I'll pledge tenderness. Oh, I must say more than ever. Around here we've changed. as well Jackie Wilson said as an example Van Morrison Dex is one of a few bands a bit like the Smiths that stand on their own as opposed to they don't have a sort of 80s sound as such a bit more organic yeah I think it was um, very different Uh, I must have been very you know apart from the slightly production side which interestingly you know we have recently remixed that that slightly harsh sort of 80s sound whatever it is um over overall music but actually the instruments and yeah i mean just using three violins three, you know three acoustic violins and and the brass and banjo and piano and yeah very much so and i sometimes think you know some people say you know about don't stand me down as being radically different you know which it was to 2IA and to Searching Young Sorrows, but, you know, 2IA was radically different, really. Mm. Um, I mean, okay, though, you know, the brass were very prominent, but, you know, they are in Dice Down as well, but it was a hugely um, different sound, I think, to, to what was going on and also to present to people. It seems, you know, I can look back at it now more so 
you know, because I'm more aware of what was going on at the time. But at the time, of course, I wasn't really, didn't really know what was going on apart from just being in Top of the Pops and hearing, you know, and seeing what, what, what was happening. But um, I think, you know, sometimes it's about things all coming together at the right time with a bit of luck. I think luck is earned. I don't think, you know, you don't just get lucky. All the work's got to be put in there. But it's just that thing of, you know, the the, the, the very fact that um, our record was played as a favour on Radio 1 by, um, I think it was Kid Jensen, but, right. but the Brad Mizell, who is the record plugger, the fact, very fact that he'd been owed this favour and that got the record played. I mean, if the record hadn't been played, you know, it's it's that thing of, well... <laughs> and then would people say, oh, well, it was too different. You know, you were wearing dungarees, you had three violins, what do you expect? It was never going to be a hit. Well, actually, you know what I mean? It was, I think, for the time, it was summer. I think the whole thing, the look, the music, mm-hmm. the... The freshness, you know, as Peter Powell said, it was like a breath of fresh air. And I think, you know, I, th- I think we were. And there was a lot of energy in that record. I mean, there's always energy in Dex's records. But um, I think that really came over with everybody, the band, with our performances where you were hugely energetic and vibrant and summery. And I think everything just worked brilliantly. And, and it was, all, you know, all credit to Kevin because I mean, when he presented the band with the dungarees, you know, <laughs> they were sort of nobody wanted to wear them, you know. But his vision is usually way ahead of everybody else's, and and you know, he was prepared to take the risk, if you like, as well, and to to try these new things, and because he believed in it all. <laughs>
bands that have such a huge success there's always that difficulty in terms of how you follow that up yeah uh, although i think with um having worked with kevin he 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 just does what he instinctively feels is right you know he doesn't yeah. try to plan to get another you know oh, how can we get another hit or something you know i mean for example when we were writing let's get this straight that just came naturally as the next yeah. record or the next creative process from him um the same with using, you know, the Brothers Just, you know, a little bit more um, call and response, a little bit more conversation that was increasing in the live shows. And, and then that naturally led onto what into Don't Stand Me Down. And he's, he's only ever written things from the heart, you know, and from what he's felt at the time and, and has always done as far as I can see. So it's never been, you know, it's great if things are successful and, and are a hit. Obviously, everybody wants their work to do well, but it's more about, for Kevin, about doing what he just naturally feels, you know, is coming from him, really. And you became even more involved on that creative side, including the songwriting on material like Knowledge of Beauty. And I think you say in the book how you, you helped Kevin where he had an idea that would just come to him and you try and translate that into music. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, Kevin, if he came up with um, a melody, I'd often work out the chords or help help him work, suggest chords that might, might work well with that melody. Or a lot of my role was working on more sort of um, texture things like, for example, Beach Boys harmony type things in what you like, you know, we, we'd, um, well, this is what she's like. We'd, I'd write the harmonies for that because I could... You know, I was able to sort of translate them from Beach Boys Records and think, oh, yeah, but, you know, that's sort of just using my, my technical knowledge, really. All sorts of things, really. Or if, And again, you know, before, you know, phones now, you can just record yourself quickly if you've got an idea. Then, I mean, we did have Walkman and things like that, but, you know, you had to set them up and put the cassette in and things. And often Kevin would say, oh, you know, write this down, hell, you know, and I'd, I'd quickly draw five lines on a piece of paper and then write the notation down because I could do that. I'd been trained to do that since I was nine through very dull theory lessons, but they actually paid off <laughs> working with Kevin. <laughs> um, so, uh, lots of things like that. Um, and it's, it's hard. It's always hard to remember how a song actually gets written. Yeah. But myself, Kevin uh, and uh, Billy Adams, you know, we work very closely. I mean, I'm, I remember Billy Adams' role was very much, much more, opinion based and hugely important you know, to Kevin and for, well, for all of us really in, in his just whether something was great to be used or wasn't quite quite right or so again it's hard to remember exactly but whatever he said it was always it was always really sound and really 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 good um really good words and everything and, and I know that um Kevin Rowland really trusted Billy's opinion and yeah I mean I wrote a lot of the the brass harmony parts a lot of a lot of, a lot of bits and pieces all my violin parts and yeah I mean it's writing is a bit like a jigsaw puzzle really you know we just 
little bit every day. We, you know, what we should have done was had a tape on for the whole thing, and then it would be <laughs> really fascinating to see how it all got together. But obviously, Kevin's the main the main creative force, obviously.
Don't Stand Me Down, you were trying to find different musicians that would, mm. would, would suit the album. I think you went to Switzerland at one point before coming back and it seemed to take a while to, to settle on how you wanted to sort of craft the album. It really did, yeah. I mean, we, we'd found some great musicians early on, like Vincent Crane, yeah. who was... We just knew Vince was right, so so that that was great. Um, we thought we'd found um, the right drummer when we found Crusher, and he was the right drummer. But it just when we went to Montreux, it just didn't it didn't work out. Who knows? Who knows why? We did get one track from him. Listen to this, which is brilliant. So yeah, finding finding the right drummer was 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 the hardest thing because without the drummer, if you haven't got the foundation there, you haven't got the feel, and you haven't got the song. You know, so when we found Tim, yeah, it was just amazing when, when we found Tim. In fact, I was listening to Tim's playing the other day, just listening to the album again, and he's just outstanding. You know, there are so many tiny little things I can hear now that I remember hearing at the time, tiny little feel things, really. You know, you can't really describe it, but yeah. So when we found Tim, everything fell into place a lot more. But what we did do, when we when we found Tim and we... we Recorded four tracks after that, pretty much, you know, in, the, in just in a few days. Um, then there was a lot of hard work in, in orchestrating the rest of it, really. And it was almost like we, it was a second process of writing. So um, we'd think, oh, yeah, a little bit of pedal steel might be nice. It was just adding colours and textures. And it was a really fantastic process. I really loved going to the studio every day because we, we you know, we'd call in people. And, and it was a very... Gosh, I mean, it, you know, it did cost a fortune and it was very indulgent and, you know, you couldn't work like that now, but but that's how it was then. So with that, you know, so that's how, how it was. <laughs> um, and it was just lovely to say, oh, just use a cello for two bars. Yeah, we're called in the cellist and, and try things out. We tried a lot of things. Sometimes we scrapped a lot of things. And like with the, the um, pedal steel players, we actually used two, two players because we didn't feel... Either of them were completely right, but we liked some of their parts and then we combined them. And that's why we gave, or Kevin gave the, the name Tommy Evans as a, it was a made up name right. to the pedal steel because we com- combined their, combined their parts. So we added a lot, you know, we wrote a lot as we went along. So the main songs were written, but, um, you know, we created a lot more. So it was, it was an extremely, um, creative process. And Don't Stand Me Down Now is, is ranked as one of the best albums, albums of the 1980s and, and mm. just keeps rising, in, in, certainly in terms of critical acclaim. But at the time, mm. it didn't get the commercial success it deserved. That must have been really disappointing, especially for Kevin. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's disappointing for all of us. I mean, we'd, we knew it was, you know, standing outside everything else that was going on in the charts, but, but we, you know, we thought it was great. You know, we, we'd invested all that time and, and, um, effort and, uh, and love for it, you know, and, and yeah, it just didn't, um, for various reasons, it, it, it didn't work. I mean, it, to release, you know, to want to release a sort of 12 minute single isn't, <laughs> was a bit optimistic, but, but even with the, you know, the, the broken up version that the record company put out. It still wasn't going to work, you know. I'm, I think if we'd have, you know, in hindsight, if we'd have put out "Listen to This," that you know, that could have been top twenty. But then, it, then again, I still think the album wasn't. People weren't ready for that album, or, or a lot of people didn't like Kevin as well. He, he, you know, a lot of people was kind of 
using this opportunity of us having, or Dex is having, um, created something that was outside mainstream as just a good opportunity to criticize him or give him a good kicking, really, to be honest, you know. And I think that kind of is what happened. And then once that happens, it becomes a, a knock and effect. And I think a lot of people jump on that or they feel scared to say, yeah, we'll play this and, and people follow. People are sheep, really, aren't they, in that, that respect, especially in the business side, I think. And and then very quickly, you know, it dropped out, it dropped out of the charts almost immediately. Nobody, nobody wanted to play it. And then you're quickly forgotten about it. And the record company certainly weren't behind it. We'd lost a manager as well. So there were, there were a lot of things going against us that if you haven't got a team backing you, it's never going to get off the ground, really. So, um, yeah, we were really, really disappointed. Um, we had a great band as well. We'd, we'd, we'd got a great band, which we'd spent another lot of time auditioning musicians for, and we were playing to half empty halls. And no matter how great your band is, if you know you look out and you see half empty halls, you know it's it's you know it's it's quite it's quite hard. It's quite demoralising. And then yeah, after that tour, it was quite clear that you know the whole thing had to sort of come to an end, really. But I mean, we were so proud of it, you know. So I mean, I think that's the thing, isn't it? You don't. There was no no regrets. There was no. Oh, if maybe we should, you know, you know, I'm still incredibly proud. In fact, you know, I had a chat with Kevin the other day and we both agreed. Or, you know, Kevin mentioned it first. And I, I've always agreed that, you know, this is what she's like is probably the best Dex's song. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I just feel really fortunate to have been part of all that because it was an amazing thing to be part of, really. <laughs> I was thinking of that compromise when I saw the beauty in your eyes. Hiding something in me, so I say so You were always near to me The thoughts of you will stay with me Ooh, Until the day I die You were standing next to me An 82 and 
because of you seems to act like a really lovely bookend to that first phase of, of Dexys. Mm. Am I right that I read that Kevin wrote that in relation to your relationship with him? Or? Because of it. Yeah, I don't only realise that. <laughs> I was writing the book. <laughs> yeah, very naive. Still very naive. Um, I knew that um, You Love Nature was was about me because I've always had an interest in plants and horticulture and everything. And, um, you know, if ever we passed trees, I said, oh, you know, gorgeous. <laughs> and he used to tease me, say, oh, you love nature, don't you? <laughs> and he put that in the um, in the song. But, yeah, I didn't I didn't think who it might be about. I just thought it was a nice, you know, it's a very sweet song. So, yeah, it's nice. You started work or started exploring solo stuff, but then um, Tanita Tickerham came, mm-hmm. came around, and, and that 
Tanita was very young at the time, mm, um, too, and, and yeah. a huge hit almost straight away in terms of the release of, of Good Tradition. And a different role for you. You weren't as involved on the creative side, but it must have been fun touring and, and playing. Very much so, yeah. I think that's right. I think, you know, um, Kevin, me and Billy were definitely a bit sort of shell-shocked after Don't Stand Me Down. And I I could see I just needed to leave the band and make a fresh start. And um, I could see that Kevin was... was Going for more of a, I could see that a solo career was happening, and Bernard Rhodes was involved. Had been around when I'd been around at Kevin's, and I could see that, could see that he was not interested in me and Billy. And I just thought, no, this is, this is time to time to go try. And and also, I think because of my relationship with Kevin, my personal relationship, yeah. so I I, th- I thought it would be good for me to just stand on my own two feet and kind of move away from him as well. Um, although we stay, we stay really good friends. We still saw a lot of each other, actually. So, but independently, musically, you know. So I, I'd play Kevin a lot of my demos that I was working on, and he'd give me feedback. And you know, it was nice actually. It was, a, it was, a, it was a, a good friendship and musical things as well. Um, but yeah, when um, Tanita's manager um, Paul Charles, who had been Dex's agent, phoned me and he, and he said, you know, I found this amazing young woman you know would you play on her her single no so would you play play on one of the songs on her album which which would become a single initially you know i i thought well you know, you know i'm writing my own own stuff now and i was sort of still in that sort of dexis thing of not because we didn't you know when you're in dexis you didn't work for anybody else so i had to quickly sort of adjust my mindset as to that as well that i could actually work with anybody i wanted to um and so when I said yes, I'd like to, and I, I did the recording. I so enjoyed it, you know, working with different people, um, and I, I loved to need a song. I'd written all my parts, and they liked everything. They kept everything, even kept the solo, which <laughs> I just sort of said, "Well, if you want it, you know, here you are," sort of thing. And they, they said, "Oh, yeah." Well, I, actually, they didn't say anything. They said, "That's that's great." At the time, but when I heard it when it was released and it was on on the record, I was absolutely delighted, you know. And then because of Tanita's success, um, a band was put together very quickly and um, I was part of part of the band. And it, it was really, really lovely. It was, it was great. It was a great, great band. Um, Tanita was very, very quiet, actually. She, she didn't, didn't say very much, but she, she was really, really lovely. And it was nice to just be the violinist in, in, a, in a band without that, you know, having to do the interviews and... Have, you know, be, be up the front and, and just be in the background sort of thing. And I really, really enjoyed it. And then, but I became more involved with her the following album. I was, you know, she'd asked me to meet up with her and, you know, I'd write some violin lines and kept all those and everything and then recorded on that album and then went to um, Bearsville to record on her third album with her, where I was even more involved um Writing with you know a little section, um, three of us, and solo lines as well, and yeah, it was really nice, and and, and um, I, th- I think yeah, it was um, no pressure, but a different sort of pressure, you yeah. know, yeah. that that thing where you're not, you know, you're definitely in the background, but you're important, you know, you're respected, yeah. but yeah, sort of not. And then um, and from that, I worked with other people as well, which was yeah. nice, you know, sort of um, like a proper session musician, you know, <laughs> that was interesting. But and that opened my eyes to being put on the spot, turning up, and you don't know what you're going to have to play, and then just 
you know, can you make up a solo or can you know, can, or can you play this and somebody sings something to you and it's like, oh, what was that again? And just, sort of like, and just having to react and perform very quickly and you know being paid in a three hour time time scale yeah. sort of thing. So that was a sort of different sort of pressure. But I really enjoyed that. Really, really enjoyed you know the variety of work and that people were asking me to play because of my style. Apart from playing on the Irish World Cup record, which was <laughs> not my style, but apart from that, people were asking me because of how I played, you know, and they knew what I could play, and they, that was nice to be, yeah, to be appreciated in that sense. Tradition of love and hate Stand by the fireside Now the rain may fall Your father's calling you You still feel safe inside Only your ma's too proud Your brother's ignoring you You still feel safe inside Oh, was it solo? Was it yesterday? Was it true for you? Cause while all the rest have taken time It's didn't do Children play and all the bad things happen Miles away and strong feelings never bother you You hold your head up while the rest of us try to Oh, call the stations, call the people We all want to know Cause while all the rest are taking time You don't want to know There's a good tradition of love and hate Stand by the fireside and all the rain may fall Your father's calling you, you still feel safe inside And your ma's too proud, your brother's ignoring you You still feel safe inside Oh, was this solo, was this yesterday, was this true for you? Cause of all the choices you have made This didn't do a lot for you And then after a few years, you did manage to lay down some tracks and, and release solo material. Romanza, I think, was your first album. That's right, yeah. Listening to Southern Hearts, the song, I can hear echoes of elements of the sound of Don't Stand Me Down as well. Yeah, some people have said that, that um, there is a definite sort of similarity of, of um, you know, maybe knowledge of beauty or, not, I mean, not the musical lines, but mm. the the type of um, type of music. I suppose it's, you know, inevitable, really, that I was co-writing that album and producing it with Kevin and Billy 
And naturally, you know, that was where we shared similar musical ideas, you know. My idea for that album was always to write music as if the violin was the voice. So, in fact, Kevin did write a song. On Southern Hearts, he did, we demoed, he wrote lyrics for that song, for that piece of music. And it worked really well. We It was much more a sort of country music style song. But, yeah, it worked really, really well, actually, as a song. And then later than that, you you took a break from the music industry? Yeah, just for about 23 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sort of not intentionally, but crept up. Towards the end of the 23 years, I was really, really missing music. But I don't regret it um, at all. Actually, when my sons were born, I kept an open mind. But touring was impossible then for me to do. I just couldn't have left the children Touring then, we just seemed to be touring all the time. Like with Tanita, it was like constantly, pretty much. And if you weren't touring, you were in the TV studio. And if you weren't that, you were doing, you know, rehearsing or doing learning new songs or something. So you were constantly working away from her and on the, you know, the sleeper bus in America for months and that sort of thing. Bands don't do so much of that now because the cost, you know, is too much. So um, in different times. Yeah, pretty soon after I'd, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd done a gig with Graham Parker, which was great. I'd released my albums. I'd, did, you know, done a few bits and pieces. But within a few months, I realised that I didn't want to leave um, my son. And then I was pregnant pretty quickly with my second son. So that was that. You know, that was <laughs> two babies under two. And by then I thought, no, this is, you know, I want to be with them. Quite happy to have a break from music, do different things. And then I, you know, I'm, I'm pleased, you know, that I, I have done other things as well, you know, because I mean, it's, I've met the, the, some of the best friends I have through those, I've met through those years. I did other things, you know, I became a gardener, you know, I did lots of volunteering for all sorts of different things, you know, whether it was a school, you know, I worked as a, a teaching assistant, you know, worked with special needs, uh, you know, children with special needs, two amazing children, you know, or men now, <laughs> and got back to music.
six or seven years ago, you, you made an appearance on Women of Ireland. Yeah, that was interesting because um, Kevin, I'd, I'd let Kevin know. We, you know. we were always sort of in touch. I mean, not all the time over the years, but um, I'd let him know that I was playing again, put it that way. Um, and uh, he met me, we met up for lunch. And then, yeah, he, he, he talked about the um, Let the Record Show album and the ideas for the album, the songs he was doing. And, of course, I knew Women of Ireland because... Kevin had mentioned it and introduced me to that song around Don't Slam Me Down, actually, because he said, I really want to record um, some Irish songs at some point. So it, it was great to hear that this idea was now happening. And then, yeah, he said, um, you know, would you consider being guest violinist? And which really shocked, you know, because I didn't think that I hadn't expected him to ask me that. And then he asked me to audition, <laughs> which was fair enough, but that was... Um, Quite amusing, really. Yeah, quite nerve-wracking, actually, because I really, really wanted to play on, you know, the song. And the guy who I was auditioning for, somebody called Ben Trigg, who's who's a, you know, he went to the Royal Academy, trained at the Academy. He's top session guy, you know, and he plays other instruments besides the cello. And he's he did all string arrangements for for Dexes. And having to sort of go around to his house and play that part was, was quite hard, but... Pulled it off. <laughs> and uh, after Dex had finished recording the whole album, Kevin then sent me some tracks over and just said, oh, you know, would you have a quick listen to some of these, you know, and see what you think. And so I'd give him some fairly, fairly detailed feedback. And then this went on, you know, backwards and forwards for a little while. And then, then he said, well, actually, you know, would you like to come on, on board full time and work on the post-production with him, Sean, Sean Reed? And Pete Schweer, who's been Dex's engineer since Don't Stand Me Down. And um, it, it was absolutely amazing. But I did do a lot of work on it. And and I absolutely loved it, you know, because it was also seeing that these things worked and, and um, that Kevin was liking what I was suggesting as well. And this last year and, and, and looking at the plans for next year, as well as the release of this fantastic book, You've just got so many things planned. You've you had the Commonwealth Games. Yeah. Things have come full circle in the past 40 years and you seem busier and more productive than ever. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you know, when I first picked up the fiddle again, I didn't really know what was going to happen. I didn't. I thought, well, you know, if you work hard, something, something will probably happen. But I'd never expected what has happened, you know. Um, and I think part of that is just the way I am. I've never really, it's a bit like the way I was when I joined Dex's initially. I didn't think too much ahead or just like, well, work hard, do your best and see what happens and go with it. You know, <laughs> It's been great. And also, you know, sort of working with Tanita again has been yeah. amazing. Yeah, working with Tim Burgess as well has been, yeah. again, a completely different aspect of my career, which you know, working with him has been, been amazing. A very different approach, you know, and that's that's been and still is great. You know, we're just about to do another tour with him. So fantastic! Well, thank you so much for your time, Helen. Thanks, I really recommend what she's like. It's brilliant to know all fronts uh, are, are open, and uh, <laughs> uh, just looking forward to the rest of year and into next year as well. So oh, thank you. thanks very much. Yeah, thank, thanks for inviting me on. Thank you.
thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.